a warm Servus from Munich, and welcome everyone to the High Tech Ventures podcast. Our mission at High Tech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The High Tech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved. Entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors. Most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Annalena Schindel, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. Today, um, I'm talking to Jacinto Sa, professor at Uppsala University and CTO and inventor of the technology behind PFAL Solar Power. Um, PFAL is making transparent solar cells uh, based on something or a field of research that we call plasmonics. And I'm sure um, Jacinto will explain us a little more about what that is exactly, what that means exactly in, in a second. But in essence, I'd say we're talking about, about materials at very squ- small scale, nanometer scale, and that we can use to, to generate energy to really, really broadly um, sum it up. Jacinto is originally from Portugal. Um, and as far as I know, studied more or less across all of Europe in a lot of different countries. Now he ended up um, in, in Sweden, based in Uppsala. And I'm very curious also to hear about how that ecosystem helped him build um, his company and where he is today. So it's great to have you join me today, Jacinto. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I hope I can shine a little bit the light into what happens in Sweden. <laughs> Definitely. Um, before we jump into sort of the, the research and technology, I'd love to um, start with your own journey. Um, and as far as I've understood, sort of a key insight for what you're working on today happened actually during your time at, at EPFL in Lausanne. Um, but maybe we can take even another step back and sort of tell us a little bit about why, why chemistry at all and how did you end up in, in plasmonics research? Like what got you excited there? Yeah, um... Yeah, my career, I think, sometimes touches a little bit of what has become the career of many people. It's, um, you want to do science, but you're not knowing very well where the science is going when you're young. But also, that funding does now change quite quickly from area to area. So I, I started, actually, as um, I was even telling this uh, a minute ago to somebody doing organic synthesis, and I never thought I would ever go back to organic synthesis. And now I'm doing with the plasmonics also organic synthesis. But... And then from there, I went to Austria, and that's where I started working in Katao's very classical environmental remediation, Katao's for water, um, um, removing some pollutants that, that were appearing in water and were becoming quite problematic in Europe. And then I moved to continue my, my PhD in, in Scotland, where I worked on that, but more on the, on the mechanisms. And that's where I would say I started being more in touch with this field of of science that is called physical chemistry, that is more the understanding of the process, not necessarily developing of the process. And then from there, I went to Belfast, still working in environmental catals, but then more related with the automotive industry. And then, of course, the, the, the car catalyst that we, we now have in our cars. And again, understanding some how some work and how, how they deactivate, but then also how to develop the next generation, since we have very strict legislation from the European Union 
um, uh, coming almost every two years. So we, always these catalysts have to be redesigned and, and improved. Um, it was there that I started working with X-ray uh, techniques uh, as a way to kind of look into these materials in, in under working conditions because of the type of radiation allows you to really see inside of reactors if you want to put it like this. Um, and that's when I then moved to Switzerland to work at the Secretron. And even if my affiliation uh, floated around between ATH and EPFL, um, I was most of the time at this so-called Polterad Institute is where they have all the central facilities, so neutrons, X-ray sources, and so on. Um, and that's a very different type of research because every week we get new users to come to use this facility. So it's a very let's say, changing environment almost every week. And you get exposed to a lot of, of, of cutting-edge science because generally those applications to get beamed time on, this situ on these places are quite competitive. But also it was when I started defining a little bit what I would like to do. And, and at the time, I really got interested on the idea of using light to drive either uh, primarily reactions, but, but to, to convert light into something that you can make uh, afterwards some product with. Um, and, and coincidentally, it was at the same time that I got introduced into plasmonics. And at the time, there was very little understanding about the plasmonic phenomena. There was a belief that you could drive a lot of what we call thermal process with plasmonics, um, which are being used for all kinds of things, including like uh, cancer therapy. Um, but the part that we were addressing was really this electrical charge. And, and, and my last years there were really about proving that that electrical charge is actually formed. And since there was a big, I would say, not disbelief, but the, the idea that they were formed was mainly um, as a kind of an, an, a construct for, for justifying the thermal part and all the other applications that the people are already developing for years. And since then we proved it, then it was also coincided that I, I, I got a position here at, in Sweden. So there was a, an open call to start this uh, uh, so-called tenure track uh, procedures that you now have almost everywhere in Europe, but it was very popular in the States. And, um, and Uppsala being the biggest university in Scandinavia, generally they pioneered the things here and, and, and it was a, a, a big competition. So it was 10 open positions for, for all, all areas of hard science. And then, and they had almost a thousand people applying. So it took quite a long time to be decided, but then I started and it was basically it coincided when I had proven that you actually do got the electrical charge and, and gave me the opportunity then to come here and start looking, what can we do with this and what, what experience, uh, what other things can you imagine doing with these materials now that you know that at least they are formed. And, 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 and then, of course, joining here, my idea was always to stay on the academia. I would even argue that never really had much interest in, in working in photovoltaics. It was really the material that made me uh, uh, start working in photovoltaics. It was not the other way around. So, so, um, so, idea was uh, to 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 try to to see what can you actually do with these materials. Is it purely fundamental that you can study, which have interesting properties, or can you actually develop something? And here, we have a, a unit that actually has been for a very long time working on the whole topics of of energy. So, from storage, which we have a very big unit on batteries but all the way to even what we call artificial photosynthesis that has a, a, now a call a center, actually not anymore a consortium that has been running for almost 30 years, looking at, at fundamental aspects of it. But of course, this topic now became very 
important and actual as a way to produce uh, renewable fuels, um, but also the, the areas of solar cells. Um, and, and my group here is working both on the chemistry, so uh, developing chemical processes with them, but also on the photovoltaics. And I, I, what I was saying is that actually was the material that made me move into photovoltaics. It wasn't really a topic that I ever thought I was going to work on uh, um, at the start. Let's talk about photovoltaics in a second. Yeah. Let's let's maybe talk about plasmonics first. Yeah. Maybe you can explain it to us non non physicists, yeah. half physicists, yeah. um, those with a little science knowledge, yeah. but definitely not enough. Yeah, I, I I think that the 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 most important thing to understand is that of course these are materials that are work on the on the completely different physical principle, and and because of it, there is properties that are unique to them, and are things that are unique. To them that you can do with those properties but any photovoltaic technology today that we know from the old silicon all the way to the most advanced organic photovoltaics and, and perovskites they work in a kind of with two principles you have an energy gap material means is that's the energy you're going to absorb if you basically send a photon that doesn't have which is the the, the unit of light that doesn't have enough energy that electron cannot be promoted to create basically uh, an electrical charge that then will lead to current. Um, but if the photon also has a more energy, it does promote, but that excess energy is lost as heat. And then the other property is that one photon of light will only create one pair of charge. Okay, so, so this is the two physical processes that, that are in any um, material that we use today. And of course, what people try to do is optimize solar absorption which means they try to make the gap as small as possible but because the gap also defines the voltage of the cell there's a limit you can go and that's why you get this what we call this theoretical limit of 35 percent efficiency that is as you predefine that gap you cannot absorb completely the photons and use all the energy of the photons and that for me was always a bit of a Almost like a ruse. Is there a way that you can go around that? Doesn't mean that you can make 100% solar cells, but can you find a physical mechanism that would allow you to not lose any energy because you lose the energy of the gap and the excess energy of the photon? So plasmonics are metallic particles, so they don't have any gap. It's a, a continuum of between the where the electrons are and where the electrons can can go. So that means that you're not going to use any energy to 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 transfer them. Um, but as a metal, they will be moving up and down very easily. You don't really create enough, let's say, voltage to, to, to do this. Uh, so the way that you can imagine the process is, imagine if you have a, a very still lake and you throw a stone in the middle of the lake. So then, of course, what you would see is this kind of ripples being formed uh, and moving away from where you throw the stone. Now imagine you do the same thing, but you throw a stone inside of a box, so that there is liquid inside of the box. You throw the stone, the ripples, of course, get formed, but they are confined within that box. So they hit the box and they come back to the stone. As they're coming back, they interact with other ripples that are still moving away, and you will see these splashes of light. This is a little bit, uh, this is quite similar to what is happening on, 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 the, on the kind of atomic scale with the plasmonics. You basically... The light is your stone. The light will basically make all these electrons move back and forward. But as the light goes goes through the material and, and leaves the material, they will lose that kind of pendulum that is forcing them to go back and forward. 
and they will start colliding with things. And of course, because they are very small, what they will collide a lot is basically the boundaries of their size, of their dimensions. And in that process, they will lead to the formation of what we call hot carriers, which means that the, the material itself doesn't give you the voltage, which is what normally you get from the gap material. The gap defines the voltage of the cell. Here is actually what you use to extract those charges that will give you the voltage. Um, the other thing is that because it's a metallic structure and there is no gap, the biggest problem with plasmonics is not the generation of carriers, the efficient uh, use of energy, because no energy is lost, is the fact that those carriers only survive a, a very small amount of time. So we're talking about a few picoseconds, which makes it quite challenging to extract them. Where the other materials you normally use extracting uh, layers more to improve efficiency. The lifetimes generally are, are long enough that you are able to extract them rather, rather well. In plasmonics, you have to come up with solutions to extract the, those carriers very quickly. Because if you do not do that, what then leads is that they recombine and they form and they, they generate heat and a lot of heat. And it's also sometimes difficult to explain to people when, you, when I say you can have up to 800 degrees C being generated, but it's not like a heater that gives 800 degrees C continuous. It comes really as a punch of energy. And that is what basically people are using to, to kill cancer cells and so on, because you can shine a laser, you can create this heat very local. And it, that amount of heat, even if it's for a very small amount of time, is sufficient to, of course, kill anything that is, that is touching. Super cool. This this was really um, yeah good good to understand like very very um, tangible. Now very early on you told me this is not about solar panels. Like this might be sort of what what everyone thinks about when they when they look at PFAL solar power. Um, so you have this material with these like very specific properties. What's what's the ideal use case and how did you decide where to where to start and so, where to go? Then, as I said, you don't lose any 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 energy because again. Each, each nanoparticle has basically their own specific absorption. So we have nanoparticles that absorb the green and have nanoparticles that absorb, which means that if you want to absorb the entire um, optical spectra, so the solar spectra, you actually have to use several particles to be able to cover all those bonds. Um, the other thing that is unique about plasma is that they have an enormous light absorption. Actually, the light kind of bends towards the particles as they get absorbed. So when you put these two things in, in together, of course, you could imagine making a very dark solar cell that would absorb all the light and be able to extract as much as possible charge from it. And that would be a classical solar cell application. The other one is that you can look for applications that can use these two unique properties, color and the fact that they have this tremendous light absorption. Some people say a hundred times more than any other material. Some people even say thousands of times more than any other material. And we are basically using at the moment, primarily the second one. That is because it absorbs so much, you can put so little there and still make a solar cell that is completely transparent, colorless. In theory, if your eyes would be super sensitive, you would see the color there. But because we use so little of it, even sometimes the most sensitive instruments cannot detect it because, again, it's so little absorption that you have there. But by default, because you absorb very little light, you cannot produce a lot of power. So the applications have to be on things that they don't need a lot of power, but they need that level of transparency. And I think it becomes very obvious when we say anything that you put, for example, on the window. So if you use, for example, a type of dynamic glass, that needs always some kind of power. 
but you still want to see through the window. So, so you want to put a, a, a source of power there that produces enough power, but doesn't affect the window. A display, I mean, you, you want to see through the display. So that's the area that you have available. That means you, your technology has to be transparent. Then, of course, the more power you can produce, the better. That means the more functionalities you can add to it. So we we basically looking for things where I always say aesthetics are important, but it's more the aesthetics actually determine the functionality. I mean, if if you buy a picture frame and you want to put a picture behind, even if you say I will put a black solar cell in front and you you will produce a lot more power, that doesn't work because you still want to see the picture behind. And that's for example how we are developing our IoT sensors. We we mount them on on a picture frame. There is a solar cell in front. You don't even know there is a solar cell, but that is basically powering the entire electronics that is required to then digitalize a room. And that, on the beginning, a lot of people thought, okay, it's more to hide the, the power, but it's it's more than that. It's the fact that a lot of these technologies need adoption and it needs to be that people don't feel that you have a box there monitoring, that they don't change the way that they interact with the device. I mean, everybody used to to, to pick a tablet and have, as big as possible screen. You don't want to use a quarter of your screen just to put a solar cell there. It's more that that aesthetics actually drives functionality and drives adoption. So so we basically trying to stay on what people like kind of in a commercial sense say, the, the kind of blue ocean where nobody can do this. Uh, the red ocean, the classical solar cells, yes, there is potentially maybe a future for this. But I have unfortunately seen so many technologies that that came and gone basically because they just couldn't compete with with the market and and the market there is very conservative no matter how much they say that they want to put solar cells everywhere and it's very difficult to compete with silicon because it's relatively cheap people really trusted it has a very long lifetime and I I was explaining this to somebody the other day that even if you say I'm I'm a say I have a solar cell that is three times more active, uh, but it will only last 10 years. But you know, every 10 years you can replace it. And if it's very cheap, you wouldn't care. But it's also this thing that I have to go to the top of my roof every 10 years and change the solar cells. You know, like there is an inherent human kind of resistance to do this. I mean, we know that if we go there and clean the panel, they work a bit better, but nobody does it because it's just something you don't want to do. You, you, and so I said, it's it's the fact that all the things there are basically set up for silicon and you have to adjust the technology to, to do silicon. And there's nothing wrong about silicon. It's just for a lot of the new technologies, the compromises you have to do to use what exists for silicon is far too high and it actually lowers tremendously their, their unique value. So we basically decided to just focus on things now that only us can do. Um, Powering devices. So we basically work on the field that normally now is called energy harvesting. Now, our product is not the final product. The final product is your display, is your glass, is your... But we are basically the, the energy behind that, that allows the deployment of that technology in a sustainable way. Very cool. It makes a lot of sense to say let's let's focus on that first. Who knows where we can go once we're at a at a, at a larger scale? Uh, maybe give us a feeling for where you're at. Like, are you building prototypes in a lab? Are you already commercially producing first yeah. um, products? We we have identified 
primarily three verticals that we are working on. So the dynamic glazing, that is about trying to minimize the use of cabling. So then they can uh, also go into the retrofitting market, which at the moment is difficult for them when they have to pass the, the, the cabling. So their power is not, they don't need a lot of power, but they need, of course, power directly built in in the glass. So, so they can easily come and just replace. The other one, so in that case for us, we have validated that we have enough power. But we have to, this is now has to be scaled up in size because we were making very small cells, maybe up to five by five uh, square centimeters. And of course, they are meter square type, uh, type technology. Um, then there is the so-called IoT sensors. This is about powering basically these sensors that we are installing in, in all kinds of things, but maybe more conventionally in housing to, to monitor parameters. Uh, we developed this prototype that is on this picture frame. A little bit, to be honest, out of out of uh, luck. I wanted to hide the electronics. I saw this picture frame in IKEA, and I thought, "Wow, we can drill some holes." And and I was very surprised how how much the real estate liked that because, and again, sometimes is 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 where you don't have this in the university is that we build that as which for me look not that that impressive, but they just saw it completely different. They saw it first is a picture frame. Nobody knows that this is a modern device, which is already a nice thing. But the other thing is that it was all contained, which means we could have a pile of them and a janitor could just go around and put them in the in the rooms. And we really didn't thought about that. We 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 just thought that, you know, it's it's just a way to hide that it doesn't look so ugly. Um so this this and that basically is about increasing the lifetime of batteries is is those those single use batteries if you, you either compromise either you don't measure very often but then the data doesn't have such a good quality or you measure very often but you have the penalty to replace batteries and you of course want to do both you want to measure at least for for every 5 minutes or even more and and have the system lasting at least 10 years because that's where more or less the electronics would require anyway replacement and we have demonstrated that actually, if you measure every very often, like every minute, you can actually start what a lot of people talk today about added value. For example, we do measure like temperature, humidity, pressure, and light. But if you measure very often, you can use machine learning and predict things like occupancy, which became quite important, for example, during pandemic, especially if you have places that are rented and they are not being used. How do you know they are not being used? Um, and then the last one is this so-called e-paper display. So this is things that you will see, for example, in the supermarkets to, on the prices. They, are, of course, are becoming smart in the sense that you can change um, the prices, but also because there has been a huge development on this area that they can do color now. So you, you, could be, you would be amazed, actually, of the quality of the display that you get on this already with color. But they are extremely low power, which means that you can really think about having harvesting energy to, to power it. So you can imagine all the way to the Kindle that you can be outside reading and basically having your Kindle be in power for much longer. And most of these things is about extending lifetimes. It's extending that it becomes not cumbersome for you to... to, to all of them require an increase slightly in size, except maybe the electronic shelf labels. Um, and they they also require basically a development of a manufacturing process. So the investment that we got now is actually to do these two things. One, to develop a manufacturing process that allows you to, to do any size. But also, we plan to operate on what we call a transferable manufacturing process. And this is because most of our customers are fairly large customers, and they would have 
concerns in, in basically partnering with a small startup from for the manufacturing process. So what they actually liked is the idea that we develop the process and basically install that at the customer side. So our demo factory is really to demonstrate the process and, and tweak for each application because, for example, now we do a lot of things in glass. There's some people that, that have interest that we do the things in plastic for their own applications. So that's where at the stage that we are now is create basically this demo factory that allows us to scale up both in units so we can run larger POCs, but also that we can develop this transferable manufacturing process. Very cool. And congratulations on, on the new investment um, that you just mentioned. Now, a lot of the things you, you're talking about right now are very far away from, from a role of a professor. So like when, when did the idea start or come about that you said, um, we, need to, we need to start a company here and this is, this is more than we can do in the lab yeah. and as a professor? I, I would, I would, I mean, I, I think every time I say this story, most people think I'm, I'm making it up as, you know, that this is going to be some plot for a movie. But actually, it was exactly how it happened. It's, um, I, I, like I said, I never had an, even in, in my dream four years ago to ever even start a company. So, and, and, uh, and it all started, which I think most academics that will hear this can associate to, with a, basically a, a comment from a reviewer. Uh, there was an insistence that, I wasn't able to extract these charges and it wasn't it was an article that eventually was published in one of the nature journals so you of course work to get it published there and and um and i was i was talking to 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 somebody here from the units of of of, of the solar cells and the, the cost the question was the guy was saying well you can only take one of the charge you cannot take both charges and the person here said well if you make a solar cell and you see a current flowing then both charges have to be extracted and then this is your answer to that um and he said if you want you know make it and we can measure it for you and then you can answer the other problems and and um and we made this solar cell not very good because we didn't have any interest in making solar cells at the time um and i took it there the magic came back of course wasn't great but what immediately that person said and that's a person almost with 30 years experience in working all kinds of solar cells said uh, are you sure that your students put the material there? Because this looks just like glass. Uh, and I said, no, no, I'm, I'm quite sure. <laughs> we were also not making on purpose to have a lot of material there. Just so if it doesn't happen, that you should see the current stopping. And he said, yeah, but even even not having too much material, there is enough power being generated for something that shouldn't have any power being generated. You should really look into this. And and probably knows me already a little bit, so he thought I was going to completely ignore this, which I have to say was the idea. And then basically two weeks later, he came and said, "You know, you should you should definitely look into this because you know this is not something common." And uh, and luckily in 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 Sweden we have a very unique type of 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 system. So IP always belongs to the inventor. So that means the university itself would be seen as not having a, a direct incentive to to help you out with any kind of IP. But as a university, we have basically three missions, uh, teaching and, and, and research. I think that's quite easy to understand. But the other one is called societal. And then you have everything from outreach all the way to creating innovation and so on. And the way that they think here is very circular. In a sense, they actually have a lot of help to the academics to file for patents. Um, and that basically is the thought that if the patent is very successful, you're going to make money and the money will be fed back as taxes. And this is how we pay our education. So they, they think this is it. 
And then he went to the process that we went to the innovation office here. They they discuss and and I think they have this very well kind of already filed down. Of course, they want to talk to us not just to say, okay, we're gonna pay for this, but asking us what are you thinking about this. I mean, filing a patent very often will bring you nothing. There is no people that will come and pay for the patent unless it's something very obvious that 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 needs that. Um, and especially in the photovoltaics, they know this very well since we have all the, 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 the photovoltaics being researched here, that if you don't do anything with it, nobody's going to come and buy. And then they, they ask us to, if we would like to join the incubator, the incubator here is quite good, build a lot of, of its reputation on, on life science, but, but it's also now going into deep tech. And, and, and there it was basically where we start maturing the idea of, of the company. And of course, as a solar cell, you think about the power. And then a lot of the things that we basically thought would be possible, like anybody think, oh, but if you have the solar cells everywhere in the glass and you have a lot of glass, you're going to produce a lot of power. But it's still the cost per watt. And the cost per watt now is still very cheap, even now with the situation that we are experiencing. That means the technology has to be very cheap and it has to last for a very long time. Two things that is almost impossible for a new technology to, to, to ensure. We don't have the, 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 the value of, of doing things in scale, which means it's always going to be fairly expensive. And we don't have the track record to say, yes, we can guarantee that this is going to last 30 years. And it was actually by talking to a lot of silicon companies that they actually been through this process 20 years ago, 30 years ago that said some actually went bankrupt because of that, because they couldn't guarantee that, that they said, are you sure that this is the best place to put your technology? Because in the end, we have all these fancy ways of making silicon, but still most of our products is this black silicon that you put on the, on the thing. And it was really there that we start, it came this idea, this is going to be for energy harvesting. And we were lucky that maybe five, six years ago, this became a topic. It became something that people realized that we need to, 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 to produce some energy locally where we are basically feeding to these IOTs and so on. Um, and then, of course, that I think was all the, the, the plan that at the end of the process of the incubator, we would create a company. And it was clear nobody was going to create it for us, so we had to create it. And, and that's how it happens. But, but the process was really completely random. I wasn't not at all even expecting this. My, my uh, thought was after this process, I will realize, no, I want to go back to my research and I don't want to do this. But I thought actually that I actually had almost a moral duty to do it. You know, like it's not so much about what potential economical rewards you get out of this, but when you realize that actually you will be actually slowing down uh, uh, something that you think is actually quite important and, and that I worked all my life to try to, to push sustainability and so on to actually now not doing it is actually being as bad as the people that already say, I don't care about it. I want the world to, to explode. So, so, so it became really like we have to do it because we actually have a moral responsibility not to do it. How do you see your role in, in that company? I mean, you're still a professor at, yeah. at Uppsala University. Yeah, so, how does that work together? And, and how do you see that also yeah. changing maybe in, in future? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's changing right now. I mean, we, the, the, the investors that come in still see this very much as a platform technology. They see that there's a lot of potential because, again, four or five years ago, there was no, no such thing as, as a plasmonic photovoltaic. 
but you also can use the effect to do other things like itself sensing and doing wireless communication and so on. So they want me to, of course, to keep spearing this because I am an authority on this on this topic and, and it will be difficult to find people to come and do that. And naturally, the, the commercial part of the of the company will start getting their own legs and, and develop. I mean, the next stage, this development of, of the process and, and it will also be things that I don't have the capability. Of course, I will be very involved on, on, on inputting and things that we learn on the process. But but this is a completely different type of skills that that I don't have. And 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 so the, 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 even to have these two units physically separated, I mean, we will be quite close, but the, the demo factory will be in its own uh, laboratory and its own facilities and where the research will continue here at university. And I think more and more what they... they there's been back and forward what will be my new title, but but it's uh, it will be something around the, as the inventor part because the idea is to continue pushing the technology to do other things with that technology while feeding, of course, the commercial side because they will for sure find problems when you start making them bigger or, or, or if you want. And things like we haven't yet explored, like what about if somebody wants a, a green solar cell? Because for some reason, we have not explored, for example, that 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 part of, of, and we see a lot of potential applications for this because you have a lot of situations, like for example, in agriculture, that you want to get rid of certain parts of the light, but not other parts because you want the plants to grow. So, but you also need power in in, in greenhouses and so on. All of this, in a sense, has to be developed, and it will be a little bit in between both of them. Some of things is about why don't we put a little bit more green and less blue, for example? Uh, but other things are completely new uh, stackings, completely new uh, architecture that we got. And that has to be done at the university because the facilities we need that we tend to look for these things are like ultra-fast lasers and so on, that we will never have that capabilities at the, at the company. And it doesn't make sense to have that, 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 that capabilities at the company unless the company really grows enormously that wants to have their own R&D unit. Let's, let's hope it does at some point. Um, but, but maybe a last question to, to dive a little deeper into, into those roles, because I see a lot of researchers having a tough time letting go of something they, they built up for years. Now you're saying very deliberately, well, I know that I'm not going to do the commercial side. Um, maybe you can also elaborate a little bit on, I, I know you found a, a co-founder and a CEO externally, like where, where did he come from and how did you build that trust also to to work together with someone sort of outside your your immediate research group and how does that relationship work i i, I always describe this a little bit like uh, if you have kids and you you your first day is that your kid goes to to the kindergarten it's terrible right they don't want to be there you don't want them to be there they are crying um but you know it's the best for them right and and you insist, you insist because you know you you're not able to educate them uh, at that at that thing. You are not able to give them the the skills at that early age, and and the benefit of being there uh, socially also. And it's a bit like this. I mean, you you can make the baby, and you can have maybe take the baby to the point that that thing. But then you have to make a decision: Is it am I doing the best for this baby? Am I really the person that can push this? Am, am Am I, am I, am I, will I be able to answer the questions that you are getting now when you're getting more investment and different type of investors, different type of customers? 
and that became quite clear that there was something there that wasn't though we needed to bring somebody with a lot more commercial vision that could package the things maybe from a commercial point of view better than this aspirational things which is still something that i do and a lot of the customers we get get inspired because i come to the meeting so it's not that i completely sever that but you need also add to that reasoning how long is this going to take it's not just aspirational type of thing and that's how it started with the previous investments the, the one of the investors suggested that to start working with somebody and i suggest that's the best thing i mean this is a bit also like a marriage if you want to go back to a family kind of metaphor um and you have to see if you can work with that person more not just so much their qualities but more actually on the personal basis because there will be tough times there will be tough discussions and they, you should have tough discussions because that's the point we have different perspectives we come from the but if you don't have a good working relationship every tough discussion becomes basically a, something of a conflict and we we have that person working with us per so about eight nine months you know and then always with idea that if the things work on but it was actually a mutual decision we would we sit down and we talk do you think you want to stay and do we think you, you you do what we want and we came to the agreement that that was yes and and now is the ceo and then we are all very happy and i think the investors are very happy with the structure that we have in place so i think it's all about measuring your capabilities and i i know that a lot of people say oh but that's difficult but I think all of us, to be honest, academics, we are very good at monitoring what we can do because that's why you you sit on that part. You don't do something else. To suddenly say, well, you never did this before and suddenly you can do it very well. I'm not saying there is people that cannot do it, but the likelihood that you can do it is very small. And that is what you want from this. If you want only to have it in your in your CV, oh, I started a company, then then you don't care. But if you actually want this to be a success, then you have to know there is other things that the company needs. And if you don't have them, you have to step aside. And I have said this, for example, even the discussions of who would lead the, the more, let's say, research part on the demo thing. If the title of CTO helps hiring the best person, I don't care about that title because I want the company to succeed. It's it's not the title that is going to change any of my role inside, but it might be something that attracts somebody that that is looking for a job and 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 takes it on because you know in a startup you have to have a lot of people that have to have faith on the process have to have people that buy into this and and are also have to be willing to spend days and nights doing things for a company that is just starting and if 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 having that title allows you to get that person. So be it. So I think people have to 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 think on on what is what are they trying to achieve, and if they are the best. And and I'm sure any academic, at least most of them, they know. I mean, when we need some new skill that we really need in a thing, we try to hire a postdoc. We don't try to learn it by ourselves. Maybe we go and read a few papers, but very quickly realize this is needs a lot more knowledge than we can actually bring it in very quickly. Um, and in a startup, that's the most important thing is you have to do things. Fail, like our CEO always say, fail, but fail early. Don't take months to fail because then you have wasted all this time, wasted all this money, and you have no farther than you could have been a few months back. It it sounds like you're on a on a great trajectory, Jacinto, and also like in a in a very good relationship. Um, I'd love to talk more 
I want to honor your time. I'm going to... No, no, uh, it's not another you. 15 minutes. It's yours. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe we can... Yeah, let's let's dive a little more into that um, um, role setup then. I mean, tell me a little bit about Pear's background too and what, what you learned from him and how sort of that, that mutual relationship has been has been valuable for you. As yeah, well. so he is he's a very serious entrepreneur. I mean, he... he I think he, he was CEO in about 11 companies. He, he actually was one of the first persons to sell uh, software for the internet. So he had a SaaS company in, in, in New York um, and then fairly successful. But then, like you said, curveballs happened, like, for example, the 9-11. And then a lot of people wanted to relocate back to Sweden because they didn't feel safe uh, on that environment. Um, and he has done this journey many times. Uh, and And what was... I think there is things that you say on the first meetings that immediately you think that's a person that gets it, you know, because they the, he, he, the way that we were always thinking in operating was kind of a license uh, way that we basically license the technology and sell the active material, which is the uniqueness that we have. And he immediately said, this is basically a method a little bit similar to like uh, um, Epson or something like this that give you the machine almost for free, but then you have to buy the cartridge. Immediately that thought, even without knowing anything about the, the technologies and what you can do with the technology, and that you immediately grasp that. I think those are things that you should really look for when you're interviewing a person that is going to have such an important role. And then the other thing is, of course, I always say build a flat uh, organization in the sense that everybody should be open to, to say whatever they want, but respect the positions. He is the boss now. I mean, I understand that, you know. But if you have a very good relationship, you don't feel it as the boss. But if push comes and shove, right, he is as the last the last thing. And you have to trust it, that he's not doing this to offend me, but he's doing this because he thinks it's the best thing for the company. And that's why you cannot just hire the person. You have to work with that person. You have to see. And, and it has to go from both sides because they also see, okay, this person is really not allowing to let go here. And they also have to see it. Is it really something that I need them to let go? Or is it something that I can coach them to do it better, but then they can do it and I don't need to focus? Because everybody will have holes on their own capabilities, no matter how experienced they are. Um, you can only build that if you have a trust relationship. If you're very clear from day one, this is the things that I, I really get quite offended if it happens. Um, and and again, it, it has worked very well. And, and we have... Days that maybe we had heated arguments, but it, like I said, two hours later, we said it's, it's been decided. And, and that's how it works well, because there's no way that we're going to agree in every single thing. But if we know that anybody saying an opinion is really that opinion is not to offend you, it's not to to think, it's for the best of the company. And again, trust the process. I mean, in the end of the day, if you hire somebody that's supposed to be overqualified for a certain job, that means they know a lot more on that than you have done that more than you that's why it doesn't come to me and say oh you should do this to the solar cell you know because he understands this is not in his in his thing so so i think and 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 i think a lot of academics would benefit from this you know i i i feel there is a lot of issues in in academia that could be solved uh, um, when it comes to grants and so on you know that people do not understand that there is no time limit there is no and and that puts a pressure on the society because sometimes you're working on a very fundamental topic. You think, okay, it doesn't matter what comes out of this. 
it, it's for knowledge. And that's fine. But knowledge should also be acquired in a certain time because you cannot keep feeding something that nothing is going to come out of it. And I literally means nothing. The other thing is also, what if happens that that topic becomes a pressing thing? Then people thought we've been investing for 15, 20 years on this. You should have at least a good starting point for the for the for the process, and and the people will just say, "Oh no, no, I, I'm only working fundamentally." Yeah, but this is now is an important thing. You've been lobbying, you've been getting money, you've been getting things. You cannot just outsource that responsibility then. And I think this idea to break down the things in very pragmatic points doesn't mean that you cannot do it with knowledge. I do this. I do my career always been very fundamental. But I, I always say, I have no problem when people say, how many papers are you going to be able to publish? With? I know there's going to be this amount of papers. Of course, if they're going to go higher in, in a journal or lower, depends on the quality of the result. But there will be certain things that you know will be achieved. And there will be certain things that you will learn. Maybe it didn't go as well as you thought. Maybe, it's a, But though that knowledge itself can be gained in that amount of time. If you're not good at doing that, then I have to say this is difficult to have a position in university because we we can become very wasteful in 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 resources and we have I I sometimes hear people say oh but you know we we doing this for society yeah but most society doesn't know they are even paying for us <laughs> uh, so we have a responsibility to be very very thorough with the money that they are sending us and actually be very grateful with the money that they are giving us without any repercussions of, of not using it properly. And it's it's funny because I, I agree. So there's this, this first part of just being thorough and, and um, responsible with the with the resources you get, um, not, not being wasteful, what you said. But then that, that next step also translating it into something for society. Now, if I understand you correctly, it was also by chance. You were sort of registering the patent and someone told you or like basically pushed you towards the incubator and said, don't you want to don't you want to do something with this? But maybe you have sort of a, a thought there for your for your fellow researchers and professors like how how can that step um, be supported more or when should someone actually reach out actively themselves as well like what's well, what are sort of the i think the university here and, and the university and i think sweden in general have realized that uh, so we have now for example something called loop tech that is actually uh, an organization within the, within the university trying to promote some of the things we are doing and actually engaging people and having sometimes not just the researcher but potentially people that are investors talking to them and say oh, have you thought about this or and and that's an important thing um, actually explaining people that the uniqueness for example of Sweden when it comes to IP that that if they don't do anything the university actually cannot do anything with it where it's different, for example, in other countries. You could have the university. Uh, of course, I, all the other countries that I work, the IP would belong to the university. So maybe then the motivation of, of, of the scientists to do something is less. Uh, but also, I think it's a realization of, of actually what are we committed to do? Okay, if, 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 Even if I say, okay, I, I don't want to have a company, and it could be that I just don't want to be involved in a company. But if I found something that is truly disruptive, that is really can make a difference, I have a responsibility at least to to promote this to a way that somebody can come and get it. Uh, we are we are obliged to do this morally. Uh, and 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 again for me anybody that says no 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 this I, they are not fulfilling the the kind of almost oath that we take when we are doing science that we are doing this in pro of society and if we fund something that benefits society 
that we just think of by having a paper published that, that, that ticked my box. That's not okay. And again, it could be that, okay, I don't want to have any commercial thing. And it could be it's your own preference, but at least that you make the effort that you put it out there that somebody else captures it and takes it. Uh, I think we have to do this. And and I'm I'm very much in favor of all this outreach that, that most grants now uh, force people to do. And unfortunately, I would say they are not used uh, very well. So it's something like this force, but actually it will be important that people actually do take this as a very valuable point of deciding giving or not the grant. Because if you thought, how are you going to touch society that is giving you that money? And you write something in that way that people can read it and say, wow, if this guy can do this, this is going to be amazing. You know, then even if it's fundamental knowledge, it's, it would it would make the grants a lot more, uh, uh, let's say, visible and a lot more accessible to people that want to then exploit uh, uh, the technology or the things that got developed. Um, of course, Europe is trying to have all this open data and so on, and it's great. Uh, I would still say that it's not going to really solve the problem because sometimes the data is still very, you know, very, very specific that is very difficult for you that are not from the field actually to, to use it. So there has to be another step. But maybe the fact that everybody can access the data at the same time allows that people can see correlations between things, can see commonalities between things, and actually from there build products and, 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 and other services that, that come from it. You you mentioned the Swedish system, and I think it's it's very unique. I haven't seen any any other country, at least in Europe, uh, do it that well. It feels like it opens up a lot of opportunity because you don't have to, as at least I assume, there's no negotiation needed. You can just start your company. You have the IP on board. Um, in other countries, you spend 12 months uh, negotiating a license with your university. On the other hand, what you just said, it it poses a lot of responsibility or pushes a lot of responsibility towards the researcher, like the, the university itself can't can't do anything. And it's like on you as a person um, to, to deal with it or to, to make something of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so I think, um, and again, I mean, I always say, you know, um, it works well here because also people are, 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 are known here to to look very much in the future because, of course, it's a fairly expensive country. I mean, you're not going to be able to compete manufacturing with China or something like this. So, so that is, and I, I remember when I moved here, I read this article that why Sweden was so good at placing technology. I mean, like Spotify, I still remember when I moved from UK and I heard the, the, the spokesperson for Spotify launching this. And I thought this is just another pirate bay in disguise. And now this is a, a, a massive company. And, and the, the reason is because they invest quite a lot, for example, on the social science. They invest a lot in understanding what mindset people are going, what are the things that are driving people. And, and that's why you can place products there that you would think, how is this going to work? I mean, I still get puzzled how Minecraft came, came about, you know, and my kid is mesmerized with this. And this guy is from here, just made billions selling this to Microsoft. And if you think about it, he didn't make a game. He made you the ability to make your own game, which is bizarre, right? I mean, I, I mean it's like you say, I'm not going to give you a car. I'm going to give you all the tools to make the car. But if you don't make it yourself, you cannot have a car. But he clearly saw that there is people. Uh, and it was the same with Spotify. I remember there is a company from here called Storytel, and I saw it in the Web Summit. And he said, they only made money when Spotify came about because they are older than Spotify. That is basically an audiobook. And he said, because Spotify realized people were willing to pay for content that they don't own. 
and this is incredible, you know, because this is the first time that you pay for something that you don't actually physically own. And they saw it. People are willing to pay for this. And of course, that's why they are successful. That's why their model is being copied by streaming services and so on. But but to have that hindsight that this is where society is going, that we don't want to have, like my kid always say, why you have these hundreds of CDs, you know? Because I like that music and that's why you had music before. Uh, because for him, he's, he's seven, you know, he finds it baffling. Why would you have this? You can have it on Spotify, <laughs> you know. And, and they talk about this thing that this existed for many, many years, you know. So it's, it's I think it's, it's you have also to have this, this kind of mindset on the thing. And people here realize very clearly now that deep tech is the next thing because there's so many apps you can build. And, and they are realizing that we are getting to that point that there is no more apps to be built. You need now to have really things that are touchable, are things that you, that are going to be the next things that are going to be in front of you. But again, they know that they're not going to be able to do this in in pink just because somebody did it in yellow, because that is that is too easy. And any any other country that has a lower manufacturing cost will take it over. But so you need to really think. And that means investors have to think differently because they're so used to invest in software. They think, oh, you, you, you put the software there and if it doesn't work, you tweak it and you send it again. They're like, no, it doesn't work like that. You, you, the development phase is a lot longer and you have to be a lot more trustful about the, the technology. And that also means that the investors have to be a lot more educated in science. It cannot be just your gut feeling. It has to be really people that understand why this scientifically is also a breakthrough and therefore you can do potentially a lot of things with it so so it's and here we are changing you can see there is a new breed of investors that hire phd students from here and so on because they realize that that's the new frontier it's it's very cool to hear and then additionally with a technology like yours that has has a positive impact as well i mean there's a bunch of batteries you can replace additional energy you can generate um, from yeah, renewable sources. Thanks so much, yeah. Jacinto. This yeah. was this was a lot of fun. Um, I wish you a lot of success also yeah. with the new new investment, the new demo plant coming. Um, and gonna be a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I was gonna say, hope to see your product around, but the the good thing is, I'm not gonna see it when yeah, when it's finally there. <laughs> you see it that's... when we are doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time. Yeah, Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.